This morning we're going to conclude the book of Judges. Judges chapter 20 and 21 we're going to take together, and I'd like to dive right in. I'd like to read the whole passage. I'm going to challenge your attention span this morning, and I hope you can stick with me, but I'd like to read the entirety of chapter 20 and chapter 21 of the book of Judges right here up front, and it is a long section, so stick with me, would you? Judges chapter 20, beginning in verse 1. Then all the people of Israel came out from Dan to Beersheba, including the land of Gilead, and the congregation assembled as one man to Yahweh at Mitzvah. And the chiefs of all the people of all the tribes of Israel presented themselves in the assembly of the people of God, 400,000 men on foot that drew the sword. Now the people of Benjamin heard that the people of Israel had gone up to Mitzvah, And the people of Israel said, Tell us, how did this evil happen? And the Levite, the husband of the woman who was murdered, answered and said, I came to Gibeah that belongs to Benjamin, I and my concubine, to spend the night. And the leaders of Gibeah rose against me and surrounded the house against me by night. They meant to kill me, and they violated my concubine, and she is dead. So I took hold of my concubine and cut her in pieces and sent her throughout all the country of the inheritance of Israel, for they have committed abomination and outrage in Israel. Behold, you people of Israel, all of you, give your advice and counsel here. And all the people arose as one man, saying, None of us will go to his tent, and none of us will return to his house. But now this is what we will do to Gibeah. We will go up against it by lot, and we will take... Ten men of a hundred throughout all the tribes of Israel, and a hundred of a thousand, and a thousand of ten thousand, to bring provisions for the people, that when they come, they may repay Gibeah of Benjamin for all the outrage that they have committed in Israel. So all the men of Israel gathered against the city, united as one man. And the tribes of Israel sent men through all the tribe of Benjamin, saying, What evil is this that has taken place among you? Now therefore, give up the men, the worthless fellows in Gibeah, that we may put them to death and purge evil from Israel. But the Benjaminites would not listen to the voice of their brothers, the people of Israel. Then the people of Benjamin came together out of the cities to Gibeah to go out to battle against the people of Israel. And the people of Benjamin mustered out of their cities on that day 26,000 men who drew the sword, besides the inhabitants of Gibeah, who mustered 700 chosen men. Among all these were 700 chosen men who were left-handed. Every one could sling a stone at a hair and not miss. And the men of Israel, apart from Benjamin, mustered 400,000 men who drew the sword. All these were men of war. The people of Israel arose and went up to Bethel and inquired of God, Who shall go up first for us to fight against the people of Benjamin? And Yahweh said, Judah shall go up first. Then the people of Israel rose in the morning and encamped against Gibeah. And the men of Israel went out to fight against Benjamin. And the men of Israel drew up the battle line against them at Gibeah. The people of Benjamin came out of Gibeah and destroyed on that day 22,000 men of the Israelites. But the people, the men of Israel, took courage and again formed the battle line in the same place where they had formed it on the first day. And the people of Israel went up and wept before Yahweh until the evening. And they inquired of Yahweh, 
Shall we again draw near to fight against our brothers, the people of Benjamin? And Yahweh said, Go up against them. So the people of Israel came near against the people of Benjamin the second day. And Benjamin went against them out of Gibeah the second day and destroyed 18,000 men of the people of Israel. All these were men who drew the sword. Then all the people of Israel, the whole army, went up and came to Bethel and wept. They sat there before Yahweh and fasted that day until evening and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before Yahweh. And the people of Israel inquired of Yahweh, for the ark of the covenant of God was there in those days. And Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, son of Aaron, ministered before it in those days, saying, Shall we go out once more to battle against our brothers, the people of Benjamin, or shall we cease? And Yahweh said, Go up, for tomorrow I will give them into your hand. So Israel set men in ambush around Gibeah. And the people of Israel went up against the people of Benjamin on the third day and set themselves in array against Gibeah as at other times. And the people of Benjamin went out against the people and were drawn away from the city. And as at other times, they began to strike and kill some of the people in the highways, one of which goes up to Bethel and the other to Gibeah, and in the open country, about 30 men of Israel. And the people of Benjamin said, They are routed before us, as at the first. But the people of Israel said, Let us flee and draw them away from the city to the highways. And all the men of Israel rose up out of their place and set themselves in array at Baal Tamar. And the men of Israel who were in ambush rushed out of their place from Ma'aregeba. And there came against Gibeah 10,000 chosen men out of all Israel, and the battle was hard. But the Benjaminites did not know that disaster was close upon them. And Yahweh defeated Benjamin before Israel. And the people of Israel destroyed 25,100 men of Benjamin that day. All these were men who drew the sword. So the people of Benjamin saw that they were defeated. The men of Israel gave ground to Benjamin because they trusted the men in ambush whom they had set against Gibeah. Now I want you to pause there for just a moment. What you just read was an account of the battle on the third day. And what you're about to read, starting in verse 37 and going through the end of the chapter, is another account of the same battle. Okay, so we're rewinding the tape. Some of you might be too young to know what that means. (laughs) We're going to go tell the story again from a different perspective. Okay, so what we just read was the perspective of the main battle line, and now the rest of the chapter is going to be an account from the perspective of the men in ambush. Okay, same story, same battle, different perspective. Here we go, verse 37. Then the men in ambush hurried and rushed against Gibeah. The men in ambush moved out and struck all the city with the edge of the sword. Now the appointed signal between the men of Israel and the men in the main ambush was that when they made a great cloud of smoke rise up out of the city, the men of Israel should turn in battle. Now Benjamin had begun to strike and kill about 30 men of Israel. They said, surely they are defeated before us as in the first battle. But when the signal began to rise out of the city in a column of smoke, the Benjaminites looked behind them and behold... The whole of the city went up in smoke to heaven. Then the men of Israel turned, and the men of Benjamin were dismayed, for they saw that disaster was close upon them. Therefore they turned their backs before the men of Israel in the direction of the wilderness, but the battle overtook them. 
And those who came out of the cities were destroying them in their midst. Surrounding the Benjaminites, they pursued them and trod them down from Noha as far as opposite Gibeah on the east. 18,000 men of Benjamin fell, all of them men of valor. And they turned and fled toward the wilderness to the rock of Ramon. 5,000 men of them were cut down in the highways, and they were pursued hard to Gidon. And 2,000 men of them were struck down. So all who fell that day of Benjamin were 25,000 men who drew the sword, all of them men of valor. But 600 men turned and fled toward the wilderness to the rock of Ramon and remained at the rock of Ramon four months. And the men of Israel turned back against the people of Benjamin and struck them with the edge of the sword, the city, men and beasts, and all that they found. And all the towns that they found, they set on fire. Now the men of Israel had sworn at Mitzpah, No one of us shall give his daughter in marriage to Benjamin. And the people came to Bethel and sat there till evening before God, and they lifted up their voices and wept bitterly. And they said, O Yahweh, the God of Israel, why has this happened in Israel, that today there should be one tribe lacking in Israel? And the next day the people rose early and built there an altar and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. And the people of Israel said, Which of all the tribes of Israel did not come up in the assembly to Yahweh? For they had taken a great oath concerning him who did not come up to Yahweh to Mitzvah, saying, He shall surely be put to death. And the people of Israel had compassion for Benjamin, their brother, and said, One tribe is cut off from Israel this day. What shall we do for wives, for those who are left, since we have sworn by Yahweh that we will not give them any of our daughters for wives? And they said, What one is there of the tribes of Israel that did not come up to Yahweh, to Mitzpah? And behold, no one had come up to the camp from Jabesh-Gilead to the assembly. For when the people were mustered, behold, not one of the inhabitants of Jabesh-Gilead was there. So the congregation sent 12,000 of their bravest men there and commanded them, Go and strike the inhabitants of Jabesh-Gilead with the edge of the sword, also the women and the little ones. This is what you shall do. Every male and every woman that is lain with a male, you shall devote to destruction. And they found among the inhabitants of Jabesh-Gilead 400 young virgins who had not known a man by lying with him. And they brought them to the camp at Shiloh, which is in the land of Canaan. Then the whole congregation sent word to the people of Benjamin who were at the rock of Ramon and proclaimed peace to them. And Benjamin returned at that time, and they gave them the women whom they had saved alive of the women of Jabesh-Gilead, but they were not enough for them. And the people had compassion on Benjamin because Yahweh had made a breach in the tribes of Israel. Then the elders of the congregation said, What shall we do for wives for those who are left since the women are destroyed out of Benjamin? And they said, There must be an inheritance for the survivors of Benjamin that a tribe not be blotted out from Israel. Yet we cannot give them wives from our daughters. For the people of Israel had sworn, Cursed be he who gives a wife to Benjamin. So they said, Behold, there is the yearly feast of Yahweh at Shiloh, which is north of Bethel on the east of the highway that goes up from Bethel to Shechem and south of Lebanon. 
And they commanded the people of Benjamin, saying, Go and lie in ambush in the vineyards and watch. If the daughters of Shiloh come out to dance in the dances, then come out of the vineyards and snatch each man his wife from the daughters of Shiloh and go to the land of Benjamin. And when their fathers or their brothers come to complain to us, we will say to them, Grant them graciously to us, because we did not take for each man of them his wife in battle, neither did you give them to them, else you would now be guilty. And the people of Benjamin did so took their wives according to their number from the dancers whom they carried off. Then they went and returned to their inheritance and rebuilt the towns and lived in them. And the people of Israel departed from there at that time, every man to his tribe and family, and they went out from there, every man to his inheritance. In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Thus ends the book of Judges. Let's take a look at this story. Obviously, with the amount of material there, we'll dip in at certain places and take a brief look at certain pieces. But let's go back to the beginning, chapter 20, and look at how this all started. Verses 1 through 11, we read the Levites' report and Israel's response here. So if you remember, the Levite had cut up his concubine and sent... Twelve pieces of her body throughout the tribes of Israel. They got the message, gathered together at his request, and here they are. This Levite has managed to exercise the kind of influence over the whole nation that even the judges never attained to. He was able to unify the whole people to come together to do battle, and none of the judges will ever be able to do that. It's important to remember that this event is apparently happening very, very early in the Judges period. It may, in fact, be so early that we're looking at a story that happened before any Judges had been raised up by God during this period. We're talking about the very next generation after Joshua had died. And so we're talking about very early in this period, and the Levite here, this no-name Levite, exercises the kind of influence over the people of Israel that is shocking and surprising. But he is able to muster a 400,000-man army. That's huge by any standards, but particularly by ancient standards. 400,000-man army gathered together at this place. And notice some of the things that he says in his account, because he, he gives a very selective account of what happened in Judges chapter 19. So if you look in at verse 5, at what he says when he gives his account... He says, the leaders of Gibeah rose against me and surrounded the house against me by night. They meant to kill me. Now, that might be a legitimate inference from what unfolded. But if you remember the story, the men of Gibeah came to the house and they didn't state that their intent was to kill him. They stated that their intent was to have a homosexual encounter with him. That's all. So he may be embellishing a little bit here that these men came and they wanted to kill me. And so he's emphasizing the danger and the threat to him personally. Notice how focused this story is on him personally. And yet, he tells the story in such a light that we would never question that he did anything wrong. He paints himself as quite the innocent victim in all of this. But if you read Judges 19, you get a different impression of the fellow. And then notice how he describes what happened further. 
They meant to kill me, and they violated my concubine, and she is dead. He didn't say, and they murdered her. He could have. But instead, he says, she is dead. Now, maybe that implies that he didn't really know exactly when she died. If you remember the story, he found her lying at the doorstep, and the narrator didn't really state outright whether she was dead at that point or not. He picked up her non-responsive body, threw it on a donkey, and marched off to go home. And then he cut her body into pieces. At what point did she die, and who caused it? I don't know. Somebody's guilty of murder here, but the Levite himself doesn't go so far as to say they did it. I wonder about that. But I think we have to leave that ambiguous and say that we don't know who killed the girl at this point. But what I really want you to see in all of this, he tells this story, he gives this report, this account, and the whole people say, okay, let's go kill some people. He gets 400,000 people, a military force, to come and do exactly what he wants. Now, what's missing from that? There's no due process. Now, you know what due process is. We talk about it in this country, but in Israel, they have some specific legislation about due process in cases like this one. Numbers chapter 35, 30. Just remind you of one passage that talks about this. If anyone kills a person... The murderer shall be put to death on the evidence of witnesses. But no person shall be put to death on the testimony of one witness. All we have here is the Levite's testimony, and they believe it. They take it hook, line, and sinker, and they don't even bother to go and check with anybody else to verify the facts. They simply go, and they're ready to slaughter people because of this. They take his word for it. And there were other witnesses, remember? There was the old man. Of the house. They could have gone to his house and investigated and interrogated the old man and his daughter. There were other people involved that they could have checked with to verify the facts, but they're not interested in following the law. They're interested in doing what is right in their own eyes. And they're not concerned about the justice of this situation. Now, one of the things I want to draw your attention to in this story is how the narrator unpacks the story because the Levite wants us to see himself as the innocent victim. He wants to draw attention to himself. He wants the people of Israel to get vengeance for what they've done to him. But the narrator will not let us forget the woman who was killed. She is the true victim in this story. And the narrator at several points will draw her to our attention again so that we don't forget it. We should not sympathize with this Levite. He is not an innocent victim in all of this. The woman is. And the narrator, the biblical narrator, the inspired by God narrator, wants us to see and remember that the true atrocity that happened here was the abuse and murder of this woman. And the narrator will not let us forget it. I'll show you those things as we go through. Verse 10 shows us that the intent of all this. What is the Levite after and what do the people get up to go do? In verse two, verse 10, their intent is to repay Gibeah for the outrage they committed. That word outrage was used in Judges chapter 19. The old man used that term twice and he used it to describe the homosexual desire of the men of Gibeah as they approached his house. But the narrator in the mouth of these people is using it to apply to what happened to the woman, to the abuse of the woman. So that what happened to her is elevated to the same outrageous status of the homosexual issue that was there in Gibeah. 
So the narrator wants us to think about her and not what happened with the Levite or the men in their intention, but what actually unfolded in her abuse and murder. So we go on into verses 12 to 17, and we see the, peop- the, the army of Israel coming into Benjamin, and to their credit, they do the right thing initially. They say, there are men in Gibeah who did this terrible thing. Bring them out so that we may execute them. Bring them out so that we may hold them accountable. Bring them out so that the language they use specifically at the end or in the middle of verse 13 is that we may purge evil from Israel. That's a phrase that pops up several times in the book of Deuteronomy. And it is the right thing to do. They want to hold the men who actually committed the offense accountable. But the men of Benjamin don't respond. They won't turn them over. They'd rather protect the guilty than hand over these men to be executed. And so Benjamin prepares for war in these verses. That's their response. Now there's a lesson here for us that I don't think we should miss. We need to beware of what happens here. Benjamin is unwilling to deal with sin in their community. Benjamin is unwilling to deal with what has happened to the sin that's been committed in their midst. The way that this is worded, I couldn't help but remember the words of Jesus. The end of verse 13 here in this story, the Benjaminites would not listen to the voice of their brothers. That reminded me of Jesus' teaching in Matthew chapter 18 about how to deal with conflict in the midst of the community of his disciples. We tend to call that passage the church discipline passage. But it's really, Matthew 18 verses 15 to 17, it's really about how to deal with sin among brothers and sisters followers of Jesus. And the lesson that comes from this story along those lines, read through those lens, is that if you refuse to deal with sin when it's observed or when it happens in the community, this is what may unfold. Judges 20 and 21. Chaos comes when we refuse to deal with sin in our community, amongst our brothers and sisters, in our family. When we choose to cover our eyes, play the game of see no evil, hear no evil, we could be unleashing terrible, terrible things in our congregation and in our family. Jesus taught us how to deal with it. It's quite simple. Simply go to the person that you saw sin or that sinned against you and you deal with it. It's really not that hard. It becomes hard when they do when the person who sinned does what the Benjaminites do. They refuse to listen to the voice of their brothers. That's when things go haywire. That's when things short circuit. And the warning of this passage is we need to take serious very we need to take sin very seriously in our community and in ourselves as followers of Jesus. We'll come back to that at the end of our time. So we see Benjamin's unwillingness to deal with sin in their midst, and what unfolds is what I'm calling the three-day war. Verses 18 to 48 tells us the story of the three-day war. Uh, They go to war within themselves, a civil war here amongst the people of Israel. We're going to dip in at a couple of places and draw your attention to a few different points. First of all, notice the inquiring of Yahweh that happens for each day. Three times the people of Israel inquire of Yahweh. Notice the first one in verse 18. The people of Israel arose and went up to Bethel and inquired of God, who shall go up first for us to fight against the people of Benjamin? That echoes the very first verse of the book of Judges. 
It's almost word for word identical to what happened at the very first verse of the book of Judges. But there, the people of Israel were asking, who should go up first for us against the Canaanites? Against the Canaanite peoples. And they were going under the command of Yahweh. God had sent them in to do battle against the people of Canaan. God sent them in as agents of His judgment against these unrepentant, wicked, idolatrous people. Here, you have no command from God to do so. So notice what they're asking. They're not asking, should we go up? They've already decided that on their own. It was right in their eyes to go and try to attack Benjamin and to deal with this issue this way, with a military force. But they want to know who should lead the charge. That's the exact same question that they gave in in chapter 1, verse 1, and God gives them the exact same answer. Judah shall go up first. Now, this is a point where it's not just that Judah is the leading tribe by prophecy back in Genesis 49, that the kingship would come from him. That might be in the background. But what's particularly relevant in this story is that the woman was from Judah. And so it's right for her people her family, to be the ones to lead the charge to get vengeance for her. And again, not the Levite. Vengeance needs to come for the sin against her. She is the victim. Her family, her tribe, her people should lead the charge in getting justice. So there's a, a, another way that the narrator draws our attention to the woman as the true victim in this story. So they go up. And they're defeated soundly. 22,000 soldiers are slaughtered by the Benjaminites. They lose terribly. And they go up and they get ready to go again, have round two. And then they go up and they inquire of Yahweh again in verse 23. They're asking a different question this time. They're a little bit humbled. Not entirely, but a little bit, it seems. But they go up and they wept before Yahweh until the evening... And they inquired of Yahweh, shall we again draw near to fight against our brothers, the people of Benjamin? Notice that they add into their question, our brothers. They're suddenly kind of more aware that these are not just bad guys, but these are our brothers. These are our kinsmen. And you got to wonder, were they hoping that God would say, no, we're done? But he doesn't. That's one of the most fascinating things of this story. He says, go up against them. He commands them, go fight. And at that point, we would kind of expect that it's going to go well for them. God told them to do something. They're going to go do what he said. And they get slaughtered again on day two. Very interesting. That tells us that this is not just about bringing judgment against Benjamin and Gibeah for what happened in Judges chapter 19. God is out to bring judgment against all of the Israelites, the whole people of Israel is off the rails here. And so the judgment is coming not just against Gibeah and Benjamin, but against the whole people of Israel. And so day two, they lose again terribly. They're defeated soundly. On the third day, they approach God yet again, verse 28. And we learn an interesting detail here in verses 27 and 28. The Ark of the Covenant of God was in Bethel in those days. Now later we're going to hear about Shiloh, Shiloh is where the tabernacle was. And so at this point, 
the Ark of the Covenant, which normally hangs out in the tabernacle, has been moved. The tabernacle stays in Shiloh. The Ark of the Covenant itself has been pulled out to Bethel, close to this battle scene. It might be that, as we see later in 1 Samuel, the Israelites are kind of treating the Ark of the Covenant like a good luck charm. They've brought it close to them so that maybe God would guarantee their victory. That's how they came to think about the Ark of the Covenant in the days of the Judges. And that idea kind of lingered on for a couple more generations. But nevertheless, that's where they need to go. And then we also learn the detail that it's Aaron's grandson who's the high priest there, Phinehas, the famous Phinehas from the book of Numbers, famous for his zeal for Yahweh. Remember why? There was an Israelite man fornicating with a Canaanite woman out in the middle of the camp, and Phinehas at that time, just a priest, took a spear and ran it through both of them. And he was commended for his zeal for Yahweh, upholding the holiness of God. And he was elevated to a position of a unique kind of priesthood. And here he's pictured as the high priest. This tells us again that we're talking about that generation right after Joshua was off the scene, who largely forgot Joshua and forgot Yahweh. Didn't take very long. But Phinehas is there, and they're inquiring of Yahweh through him. And the question is, verse 28, Shall we go out once more to battle against our brothers, the people of Benjamin, or shall we cease? And at that point, they add in, should we stop? i got to think that they're thinking, please let us stop. I mean, we're getting killed. We're getting slaughtered here. But no. (laughs) Yahweh says, go up. But then he gives what he hasn't given the two days prior, an assurance of victory. For tomorrow I will give them into your hand. And then we see the battle unfold and how they set up an ambush and they do, in fact, gain the victory. One way to evaluate and think about a battle, both in modern days and in the ancient worlds, is to think about the numbers. We're given some numbers here to help us think through what's going on here. But there's more than meets the eye in the numbers that we're given. And so I want to think about that with you for just a moment. So the numbers that we're given, we're given that the Israelites have amassed a 400,000-man army, and the Benjaminites are able to amass a 26,000-man army. Okay, So Benjamin is vastly outnumbered. But let's think about the total for just a second. 426,000 soldiers for the whole nation of Israel, a 426,000-man army. What are we to think about that? Well, if you go back to the book of Numbers... You go to Numbers 26, we don't have to turn there, but you can look later if you're curious. Some of you love numbers and math, and this this is for you. So, Numbers chapter 26 gives the census, the counting of the military force of the whole nation of Israel broken down by tribes. And Numbers 26 comes and gives us the big picture and the conclusion. If you look at that number and then you can compare it to this 426,000 man force, one writer has summarized the data for us a little bit. So here's the point of making that comparison. What you would see there is that there has been a decline of almost 30% in Israel's population in the Joshua to Judges period. Despite the victories under Joshua, Israel has not prospered since its arrival in Canaan. 30% of their military force has been decreased in one generation. I think that's significant. More than that, what we see here as they come together 
and they go against each other, we see some other numbers, and one of these might give you some grief. So I want to say a word about this. You noticed, perhaps, in the two accounts that were given of the third day battle, the casualties of Benjamin don't match. Verse 35, we're told that 25,100 men of Benjamin were destroyed that day. And then in the second account, in verse 46, we're told that all who fell that day of Benjamin were 25,000 men who drew the sword. 25,100, 25,000. I wonder if that bothers you. I hope it doesn't. It doesn't bother me. But you will get skeptics who want to disprove the validity of the Bible pointing to things like this. Look at that. In the same story, the same writer can't get his facts straight. Was it 25,100 or 25,000? What's the deal? Simply put, they are using numbers the way that we normally use numbers. Now, I say we, and one of the problems with this is that we, as modern Western American folks who have calculators and computers, we like and value precision. Numerical precision is a high value in the West. Yes? True? In the ancient world, it is not as highly valued. Numerical precision is not a huge deal. It's not to say that it's not important. It's not to say that they didn't count precisely at times. They do, and they can. But here's the thing. It is completely normal, whether today or back then, for a, oh, an account of an event in history to give a precise number, and then in another place, to give a round estimate. And that has nothing to do with an error of any kind. There's no factual error here. The intent is simply to summarize and to do that by way of an estimate. If you knew, if you knew how hard it was and how many letters it takes to write out these numbers, you would understand why somebody might say, after already writing 25,100 why they might go back to saying 25,000. Big difference in Hebrew letters. And when you've only got so much space on a little whatever they're writing on, the estimate shouldn't... I hope it doesn't bother you. It doesn't bother me. It is not in any way uh, calling into question the accuracy of this account. About 25,000 people were killed. Okay. We can say more precisely, 25,100 were killed. Very good. We have both an estimate and an exact number. I hope that doesn't bother you. If it bothers you, come talk to me later. I don't know if I can fix it for you, but because it is what it is. So that's what's going on there. But here's another piece of it that you might not notice initially, unless you're a math guy and you're already kind of doing the math. We were told that Benjamin started with 26,700 soldiers. And then on day three, we're told with the precise number, they lose 25,100 soldiers. And then at the end of the story, we're told that they have 600 left. The math doesn't work. You math guys already picked up on that, I'm sure. But the math doesn't work out exactly. So where'd the other 1,100 go? Because you're missing 1,100 soldiers. Where'd they go? What happened to them? I suspect that 1,100 Benjaminites were killed on the first two days, and the narrator chose not to tell us about that. Because the narrator was focusing on how soundly they defeated the people of Israel on the first two days. And he chose not to tell us that some of the Benjaminites got killed on the first two days. But if you think about ancient warfare, hand-to-hand combat, largely, usually, most of the time, there are casualties on both sides. 
right? I mean, it's rare, even in the broader scheme of world history and warfare, for a battle to go on where there are no casualties. It happens, but it's rare. I think that's all that's going on. hope you're not disturbed by that. I'm not troubled at all. This is a 100% absolutely accurate account of what happened. And I'm not troubled by the, at the, at the, in the least by what happened, by the way the numbers are portrayed. Here's the point. Why does this matter? Who cares? The math guys do, but it, why does everybody else care? What you're supposed to see in this is that if you did the math, the Benjaminites lost 98% of their force. 98% of their army is gone in three days. They are decimated and demoralized, to be sure. That's the point. Now, with all of that, we want to look at the big picture. What is this all about? Why is this here? Why do we have this long, detailed story in our Bible? Why is it here in the book of Judges? Simply put, this is the judgment that's come, particularly the judgment of new Sodom. Not just Gibeah and Benjamin, but the whole nation of Israel is implicated here. Judgment has come. We asked the question last week when we looked at the account in Judges 19, we compared it to Genesis 19 in the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. The narrator has driven us to that comparison by the way he's told the story. But we raised the question, where's the fire and brimstone from God? Well, it's right here, ultimately. God brings judgment, this time in the form of a military invasion. In Genesis 19, God chose to bring judgment without the aid of human beings or without the instrument or agency of human beings. He just rained fire and brimstone from the sky. God brings judgment in history through both of those ways. God brings judgment in history on wicked people. He pours out His wrath on people in history through what we call natural disasters. Tornadoes, hurricanes, earthquakes, volcanoes erupting, and fire and brimstone from the sky. God brings judgment against wicked people through those things, but He also brings judgment through warfare, military invasion, nation against nation killing each other. If that's not an outworking of God's judgment against sinful people, I don't know what is. People rising up and killing each other. There are other reasons for warfare to be sure, but that is surely one of them. God is always working out His judgment when people are killing each other. It's an evidence of our sinfulness there. But the narrator here gives us some clues of what's going on. Look at verse 35. First of all, he says, Yahweh defeated Benjamin before Israel. So Yahweh gets the credit for the victory here. Yahweh gets the credit, but then it says, and the people of Israel destroyed 25,100 men of Benjamin that day. So Yahweh defeated them, but the men of Israel pulled their swords, and the men of Israel put their swords into people's bodies and killed them. And God gets credit for the judgment of the wicked through that means. It's graphic, but I want you to see it that way. The narrator wants you to see it that way. God did it through the military actions of these people. Look at verse 40. Another clue of what's going on here kind of behind the scenes When the signal began to rise out of the city in a column of smoke, the Benjaminites looked behind them, and behold, the whole of the city went up in smoke to heaven. That verbiage about a column of smoke and going up in in smoke to heaven or to the sky is drawn out of Genesis 19, 28. So that that was what was left of Sodom and Gomorrah. 
Genesis 19.28 talks about how there, after God rained down fire and brimstone, the cities were going up in smoke. And so the narrator has used that detail to tie the stories together to say that this sin and activity that was going on in Genesis 19 is being judged by God in a parallel way to what happened to Sodom and Gomorrah. One more little clue that this has to do with the killing of the concubine in particular, verse 45. And this one is just in Hebrew. You can't see this in English at all. The narrator says, 5,000 men of them were cut down in the highways. That verb, that Hebrew verb, is a very rare term in the Old Testament, but it's used here and it's used in chapter 19 to describe the abuse of the woman. When the men of Gibeah abused her all night long, it's this word. And so we could translate it, they, 5,000 of them were treated harshly or treated severely or abused terribly. The judgment fits the crime. Perfect, if incomplete, judgment is being executed by God here for what happened to the girl, to the woman, not to the Levite. He's out of the picture completely, by the way. He's gone. What happened to him? Did he go out there and fight? I doubt it. But we don't hear from him again either way. Note the final summary in verse 48. The men of Israel turned back against the people of Benjamin and struck them with the edge of the sword, the city, men and beasts, and all that they found. That phrase includes women and children. That phrase is what creates the situation in chapter 21. The people of Israel killed all of the women in Benjamin. All of them. Slaughtered them. And all the towns that they found, they set on fire. And so we go into chapter 21, and now we've got to deal with the situation. And we learn some information in the first paragraph of 21 that we didn't know yet. The narrator kind of held these details off for, for the sake of suspense, I suppose. But now we find out that the people of Israel took a couple of vows, a couple of stupid vows. We need to call them that. And I can't help but remember Judges 11 with the judge Jephthah, who will come later chronologically after this happened. Apparently they didn't learn their lesson. People are still going around making stupid vows. This is a stupid vow. And they they realize it after the fact. They realize it after the event is over. But their vow in verse 1... So we're reading about Benjamin's near extinction here. Well, how did that happen? They even asked that question to God. How did this happen? Well, let's see. How did it happen? Oh, yeah, it's your fault. People of Israel, the men of Israel had sworn at Mitzpah, no one of us shall give his daughter in marriage to Benjamin... There's an irony there because the people of Israel throughout this period are pretty happy to give their daughters in marriage to the Canaanites, but they refuse to give their daughters in marriage to Benjamin. Now, they don't realize it at the time. This is why this is a stupid vow. They don't realize it that if they don't give their women to Benjamin and they've killed all the women in Benjamin, that means that in one generation, Benjamin's going to be gone, gone. No more Benjamin. But they didn't realize that. They didn't think it through. They made a stupid vow. And now it's dawning on them. Oh my gosh. They're going to be gone. They're going to be non-existent if we follow through with this. Then they ask and they pray in verse 3. Why has this happened in Israel? That today there should be one tribe lacking in Israel. Gee, I wonder... They then rise and they build an altar and they offer burnt offerings and peace offerings. What's that about? I I just don't really think well of the people of Israel during this period. And I think they're trying to manipulate God. 
let's make some sacrifices, let's see if God will fix this somehow. But then they don't actually go through and ask God for guidance or anything. They start consulting among themselves to figure out what to do. Verse 5, which of all the tribes of Israel did not come up in the assembly to Yahweh? And then we learn about the other oath that they took. They had taken a great oath concerning him who did not come up to Yahweh at Mitzpah, saying, he shall surely be put to death. So they say, okay, we took this one oath that says, we won't give any of our daughters to marry Benjamin, and we took this other oath that says, we can go kill anybody who doesn't come up to the assembly. Maybe we can use those two things to fix each other, somehow. And that's exactly what they're going to do. They're going to take one stupid oath to fix another. When the Mosaic Law had given them provision to fix a stupid oath the right way, Leviticus chapter 5, confess your sin, make an offering, and don't go through with the stupid vow. But they think that their vow, keeping their vow is the most important thing. And so they do this crazy thing that happens next. So verses 8 through 14, we read about finding women for Benjamin. Part 1. How are we going to do it? Massacre. That's the answer. Massacre. So they've made this great oath, and they look at the roll, or they think back and say, okay, who didn't show up? The people of the city of Jabesh-Gilead didn't show up. Don't know why. They're not given a chance to explain themselves why they didn't show up. We're just going to send 12,000 of their bravest men to go in and kill a bunch of unsuspecting Israelites. Jabesh-Gilead's going to be slaughtered. They're going to be devoted to destruction. You probably remember that word. It's the word that popped up so often in the book of Judges, uh, the book of Joshua, that the people of Israel were supposed to do to the Canaanites in the land. But here, they are acting to do that to their own people, to their own brothers, devoting them to destruction. The term was used once in Judges at the very, very beginning, chapter 1, verse 17, where one Israelite city, or one Canaanite city was put under the ban, is the way the NIV puts it, I think, um, or devoted to destruction. But here, they're going to qualify it. They're going to say, well, we're going to devote them to destruction, but not completely. We're going to do a little selective ban here. Let's just slaughter the men and any of the married women. So think about this. At the end of it, they're left with 400 virgin women. Their fathers have been murdered. Their brothers have been murdered. They're left alone and unprotected. And then the army goes in and takes them by force and hands them over to men they don't know to be married. I ask you, is that any better than what happened in Judges 19? To the Levite's concubine. They are forced to go and marry these men from Benjamin. Notice the comment that you probably just read over and think nothing of at the end of verse 12, but I think it has significance. They bring these young virgins to Shiloh, where the tabernacle is, and then the narrator says, which is in the land of Canaan. Not the land of Israel. The land of Canaan. This is the only time after the conquest, where a city in this territory is referred to as the land of Canaan in the Old Testament. I think the narrator is doing that on purpose. He's saying Shiloh, the place where the tabernacle is, is a Canaanite city still. Even though Israel took it and they live there, it is a Canaanite city because of the way that they are behaving. They are Gentile, pagan, Canaanite people, even though Abraham's blood runs through their veins. 
We are in the land of Canaan among the people of Canaan who call themselves Israel. It's an ugly time and it's an ugly reality. Well, that was the solution, their first solution. Let's go massacre the people who didn't show up to the council uh, at the first. But we only got 400 and there were 600 Benjaminite men. And so we need to make sure that we get 200, Benjaminite, uh, 200 women so that every Benjaminite man can have a wife. So women for Benjamin part two. What will we do now? Well, let's try abduction. We did massacre at first. Let's try abduction to finish the job. Verses 15 through the end of the chapter. So they... Now what I want you to notice here is who makes this suggestion? It's the elders. The elders. There's two things to note about that. One is that largely the book of Judges could be read as an indictment of the leadership of Israel, the failure of Israel's leadership throughout this period. The judges have been awful or will be awful after this point. The judges will be awful. There's no king in Israel. That's the major theme. That leader is not, he's not there. The judges have been a disappointment, even though God used them to do good things and to preserve the people. They themselves were problematic. And now we see, we've, and we've seen the Levites have issues in the last couple of chapters, and now we get the elders brought in for some attention. But the second reason this is interesting to think about is because the word elder is just the word for old man in the plural. These elders, plural, are making the same kind of suggestion that the old man made in Gibeah. You remember when the men surrounded the house looking for the Levite? The old man the elder of the house, if you will, stepped out and said, here, take my virgin daughter instead. The elders of the people of Israel, all of them, the elders of the people of Israel as a whole, come out and make the exact same suggestion. Let's take some virgins from this place over here and give them to Benjamin. Everyone is doing what is right in his own eyes, including the leadership of the people of Israel. It's perhaps fitting providentially. We didn't plan this out, and I didn't think about this until a couple of weeks ago. But over the next couple of weeks, on Sunday mornings, we're going to be talking about leadership of God's people. Talking about elders and deacons and what they're to look like in this body. And so, it's fitting after we've looked at the book of Judges, and we think about what happens when leadership is broken. What happens when leadership is failing. That we should look at what the New Testament says about how God's people today are to be led and instructed. So we'll be looking at that over the next couple of Sundays. But here the elders are very much broken. Their suggestion is all kinds of messed up. They're not asking God for guidance here in verse 16. What shall we do for wives for those who are left? They're asking each other. What do you think? What should we do? What, what, what strategy should we take? We slaughtered a city. We only got 400. What do we do for the rest of them? And then, so they're asking the question, and then they're giving the answer. Aha! Verse 19, someone remembers. Oh, there's this festival, this yearly feast of Yahweh at Shiloh. Now, which feast of Yahweh? Does it matter? Who cares? It's all messed up. Um, It might be one of the three annual feasts that are legislated in the Mosaic Law, but man, after reading the book of of Judges, we wonder if anybody even knows the Mosaic Law at this point. Does anybody know that there are actually feasts that are scheduled, that are on the Israelite calendar? Who knows? This may be a feast that they made up 
and dedicated to Yahweh. Because surely none of the feasts of Yahweh legislated in the Mosaic Law feature a whole bunch of virgins coming out and dancing. Not necessarily a bad thing or a wrong thing, but they're doing this. And that's what they focus on. And so they're going to go to Shiloh. And so here's the elder solution. Benjamin men, the 200 that are left, go hide out in the vineyards. And then when they come out to dance, apparently it's going to be hundreds of young virgin women from Shiloh coming out to do a a kind of dance, collective dance out in public. And they're going to be hiding out in the vineyards. And the elders say, go snatch. How do you like that word? Snatch each man, his wife, from the daughters of Shiloh. Not a nice word. Not a nice word in Hebrew, not a nice word in English. Uh, They're going to go in by force, unsuspecting. These women are going to be out there dancing in peace like they normally did every year. And suddenly there's going to be these men hiding out. And then they're going to jump out and they're going to grab them. I mean, think about how horrific that is. And this is the elders' instruction for the people. And they've even strategized a plan for what will inevitably happen when the daughter's fathers and brothers realize what's gone on. When their daughters have been kidnapped, surely they're going to come and want to know, what's this about? And the elder's suggestion is, don't worry, we'll answer for you. We will tell them, grant them graciously to us. They have the audacity to use a grace word in Hebrew here. Show us grace. Give a, do us a favor. Here, Because we didn't come in militarily. We didn't strike your city like we did with Jabesh Gilead. You almost hear a tone of threat in that. We didn't do that to you, so let us have them. And, and, and we didn't, you didn't give them because, you know, you made that oath with us that you wouldn't give your daughters to Benjamin, so you didn't do that. So, so if we take them, you know, if we kidnap them, then that's okay. You're not breaking your oath. We didn't strike you and slaughter you like we did with Jabesh Gilead, so it's okay. And apparently that's supposed to satisfy them. And apparently it did. That's what they did. The Benjaminites came and they took their wives. That's not the normal word for taking a wife. That is the phraseology that's used, but the Hebrew word's different here. It's a word for picking up and taking away. Abducting is the sense here. And carried them off. There's violence in this. There's just as much violence and abuse pictured here as what we saw with the concubine. The people of Israel in mass coming in and forcing their will on women with no protectors and with no protection. And then everybody goes home. Verse 24, everybody just goes home, story's over. We might expect that at this point, the way verse 24 is worded so innocuously, so peacefully, the people of Israel departed from there at that time, every man to his tribe and family, and they went out from there, every man to his inheritance, and then we might expect the story to end. So one tribe of Israel did not perish. The men of Shiloh were not bloodied as Jabesh Gilead had been. All 600 Benjaminites had wives, and everyone lived happily ever after. But that's not the inspired narrator's assessment of this. Instead, it's verse 25, in those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. I don't know whether this counts as worse than what we looked at last week, but it's surely bad. And thus ends the book of Judges. 
what do we do with this? We could take some time, if we had time, to explore some large lessons from the book of Judges, but I'd rather just focus on these last two chapters and draw out a major point for us here. Civil war is ugly, and there's a lesson here when God's people are killing each other, largely because one group of people refused to deal with sin in our midst, in their midst. The lesson for us as Christians, as the church today, comes in that realm. So I'd like to turn your attention to Matthew chapter 18 for just a minute. Not the verses I mentioned earlier, but earlier in that, earlier in that passage, Matthew 18. The conclusion of the matter is this. You are your own worst enemy. I wonder if you know that about yourself. You are your own worst enemy. We often talk about the enemy when... Bad stuff happens when we feel strained or stressed or tempted or we find obstacles in our path. We talk about the enemy. And I think most of the time we're thinking of the devil. First John gives us a trio of enemies that plague God's people, the world, the flesh, and the devil. I'm convinced just by sheer number, you could verify this pretty easily with a concordance, that when the New Testament talks about the opposition we experience as Christians, the devil is the least mentioned problem. Most of the time when the devil is mentioned in the New Testament, he is mentioned only to talk about how defeated he is. Rather, when the New Testament wants to address us and instruct us for how to deal with the opposition that we face in the world, most of the time, by far, not even close, the enemy that's being focused on is the flesh. The enemy that lives right in here. Satan is an external enemy. He's out there. And yes, he does oppose us. And yes, the scriptures talk about how we deal with that. But by and large, the vast majority of struggles that you and I face day to day, we need to focus our attention right here to my heart. That is where the worst enemy is. I do far more damage to myself than the devil ever has or ever can. Matthew 18 gives us some of this instruction. Verses 7 through 9 is where we'll begin. We'll be quick and brief here, but Jesus says to his disciples, Woe to the world for temptations to sin. Now that's an interpretive paraphrase of a Greek word that means a stumbling block. Jesus is using a metaphor to teach us. Woe to the world for things that trip you up. Woe to the world for things that trip you up. And then he goes on to say, For it is necessary that stumbling blocks or temptations come, but woe to the one by whom the stumbling block or temptation comes. Now at that point we might think, well, he's talking about somebody else, talking about somebody out there, talking about, uh, he could be talking about the devil who brings temptation, or he could be talking about another person who brings temptation or causes to, or trips me up or causes me to stumble. He's not. He goes right into talking about me. And, so he's continuing his discussion here, and if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, stumbling block, trips you up, if your hand or your foot trips you up, causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. So he focuses his crosshairs not on the devil, not on the world, but on my hand, which is right here, a part of me. He focuses his attention on my foot, which is a part of me. He's using imagery. He's using figurative speech. 
The hand, he's referring to the things that we do. The things that we do, the activities that we involve ourselves in, cause us to sin, lead us to sin. When he talks about the foot, he's talking about the places that we go. The places that we go cause us to sin, trip us up in our faith. What are we to do? Cut them off. Now again, he's using a figure of speech. He is not saying amputate something, literally. And he might be thinking in the metaphorical realm of surgery. That this is serious enough, it's a disease, and if you don't amputate, you're going to die. He might be thinking in that. But I think more likely, he's in the world of military metaphor here. The enemy is my hand. The enemy is my foot. And I should take a sword and cut it off so that it no longer harms me. The point is, if we look at our lives, we look at the things that we do, the places that we go, and they lead us into sin, they provide opportunities for us to sin, we should stop doing that. We should stop doing that activity, stop going to that place. Here's why. If your hand or foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. We are not dealing here with a light matter. Jesus is dealing with the vast, measureless seriousness of sin. And he's talking about the seriousness of sin among his followers. People who claim to follow Jesus. 1 John 1, 5-10 through 10, and on into chapter 2 gives us a mark of a believer. And it has to do with how we deal with our sin as believers. If we don't take sin seriously in our lives... That might be an indicator that we don't know Jesus. Thinking that because I'm forgiven, because Jesus has died for me, then sin is no big deal. It doesn't matter. I can do whatever I want. That is an indicator that you haven't received, maybe, the forgiveness that you're talking about. For the Christian we should take our sin even more seriously. Because think about it. Jesus died to pay for whatever it is that you're doing. That's serious. He had to die to pay for whatever it is that you're doing. So the only appropriate response in that moment is to confess it and repent. Confess it and repent. For the Christian, we are free to confess our sins without fear of condemnation. There should be no hiding among us. There's no need. We are justified. We are forgiven. There's no condemnation to fear for admitting our sins. So let's admit them to each other and to God. There's no fear of judgment. But there's a warning here. For followers of Jesus, we should be taking our sin really, really seriously. My sin. My failures, it matters. It matters eternally. 
He goes on and builds on the metaphor. And if your eye causes you to sin, again, something in here, internal to me, if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. Notice that the way Jesus says that, you don't just go to hell. Hell is not just the natural consequence of your sin. Hell is a judicial sentence of a holy God. He sends people there. He throws people there. He will on judgment day. He is the judge. And His sentence is what matters the most. And Jesus is saying that if you don't take your sin seriously, and you claim to be a follower, you might be in danger of facing that reality on judgment day. So your eye involves what you look at. If what you look at causes you to sin. So I'm talking to a media-saturated bunch of people. All of you. No matter how old or how young. We are media-saturated. We look at lots of things. And we need to evaluate what we look at. And if what we look at causes us to sin. And I'm not, not just talking about lewd Things I'm talking about if, you, if you're looking at political commentary on the news leads you to anger and rage. Check yourself. Look at that very seriously and determine. Is, the question on the table for Jesus here is, is it worth it to you? Is it worth it to coddle your sin? Is it worth it to hold on to a little temporary pleasure to face the possibility of being cast into hell on Judgment Day. Is it worth it to you to do that? Is it not greater worth, of greater value to sacrifice a little? Cut out your eye. Sacrifice a little. Given, given what you get on the other side of that. It is better, better, better to enter life with one hand, with one foot, with one eye, than to be thrown into hell, having all of your sin and everything that caused you to sin preserved during this life. What's the alternative? You back up in Matthew 18 just a little bit. Verses 3 and 4. Jesus said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn, unless you repent... And become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. I've pondered often, what exactly, in what way are we supposed to be like children? Because there are lots of ways that I don't think God wants us to be like children. I mean, I look at my own and I look at yours. And I think, I don't think God wants me to do that. Or to think like that or to act like that. But... There is a, a, something about children. And there's, there's lots of possibilities. But I had a new one come to mind this week. Because my daughter has started doing something very interesting. She's started asking mommy and me, are you happy with me? Particularly after she's done something that makes us unhappy. <laughs> and she perceives it. 
on our face or in our response. And she's asking, are you happy with me? And I've wondered, could that be the piece of this that we're supposed to imitate and embody? A desire to please our Father. An attitude that says, I don't want to disappoint Him. An attitude that says, if I'm doing something that disappoints Him, I want to change. I want to stop it. I want to do different. There's a lot in Scripture, in the New Testament even, about pleasing our God as His children. He is pleased with us as His children. Okay, Don't miss that. Just like I'm pleased with my daughter, because she's my daughter. But I'm not pleased always with what she does. And God is not always pleased with what we do. He calls us to please Him in what we do. And we should feel the weight of that. Ultimately, we do that by looking to Jesus. We repent of our sin when we see it. We confess it, fearing no condemnation because of what Jesus has done for us. And then we radically get rid of it, whatever it is. It's not worth it. It's not worth it to keep up that way. So know this about yourself. You are your worst. You are your own worst enemy. But God has given you provision to deal with your flesh from day to day, the spirit who lives within you. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the book of Judges. I don't think I've said those words through this whole study. You've put it in your book for our benefit, for our good. We've wrestled with it. We've looked at it. We've responded to it in a variety of ways. Much of it has discouraged me as I've looked at it. Much of it has frustrated me as I've looked at it. And some of that frustration has come from my own tendency to do what is right in my own eyes. And seeing what could be from that is terrifying. So, Father, thank you that you've provided a remedy for that. You've provided the king that is the solution to the problem of the book of Judges. And thank you that you've called me and called us into his kingdom, settled us in as his citizens, citizens of his kingdom, given us all the rights and privileges and responsibilities of that kingdom, and put your spirit within each one of us to enable us to live as good citizens in your kingdom in this world. Would you help us to take our own sins seriously? Let us never shovel it under the rug, try to cover it up, or minimize the significance. And let us express our gratitude, our deep gratitude, that you sent your Son to willingly die to pay for our sins. Help us to please you in our day-to-day life. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.